Welcome listeners to our second podcast in a series on managing responses to patent assertion entities. I'm Mike Messenger, partners in the Voorhees Intellectual Property Group. And with me is Judith Marsh and Carrie Jordan. Judy is a partner in the Voorhees Corporate Finance Group and Carrie is a practice group leader in the Voorhees Intellectual Property Group. Uh, welcome, Judy and Carrie. Thanks for having us. Today, we see a rise in patent assertion entity, also called non-practicing entity or MPE litigation. Unified Patents reports a 7% increase from 2020 levels. RPX reports that at the end of 2021, patent assertion entity litigation rose almost 10%. And then over 10,000 patents recently have been transferred to patent assertion entities for monetization. High-tech MPE litigation is at an all-time high of 87% of patent assertions. Against this backdrop, it's great to have you both here to discuss how companies can manage assertions by patent assertion entities. So today we're gonna to look at one line of defense against patent assertion entities. That is indemnification. So Judy, what is indemnification? Thanks, Mike. Um, indemnification is at its simplest. It's one party agreeing to protect the other party from harm or loss. So indemnification is used by companies to protect themselves, sometimes from third-party infringement claims. So for example, if your company licensed the right to use intellectual property from a vendor and your company is sued by a third party who claims that the intellectual property infringes on that third party superior rights, a right to indemnification is going to permit your company to go back to your vendor and require it to pay you for your losses. Well, that's helpful. So you mentioned vendors. You know, what types of agreements can we find these indemnification clauses in? You know, indemnification clauses are in all types of commercial agreements. So specifically, you know, sale of goods, services, software, IP licensing. With respect to intellectual property licensing in particular, you're often going to see these in software supplier agreements, enterprise agreements, service provider agreements, maintenance contracts, and in similar types of arrangements. And you know, I'm glad you focused on intellectual property indemnification clauses. And for patent assertion entities, we're really looking at third-party patent indemnification. Can you give us a sense of what the clauses and terms involve? Sure. Indemnification clauses will cover who is indemnified. So, you know, there's a there's a scope of, of things that we look at in an indemnification clause. It's who, it's what. It's what the triggers are. It's what is covered. So who is usually going to be you as the company, the, maybe the licensee of the intellectual property? And it's not just going to be you as the name party. It's often going to include your affiliates, your employees, your officers and directors, and, and maybe even your permitted sub-licensees. And the scope of that obligation is going to be defined in that indemnification clause. So it's going to be saying indemnify, hold harmless, defend you. And, and that's how it's going to tell us what the scope of their obligation is from a expense standpoint. They're going to indemnify us for a loss. They're gonna defend us against the third party and the litigation expenses. And they're gonna hold us harmless. And hold harmless is, we could get into a long discussion of what that means, but it, I sort of think of it as being gonna indemnify and defend. And so, what is covered? You know, that's part of the scope of the indemnification clause. 
if you're the on the receiving end of that indemnification clause, obviously broader is better. You can specify personal injury. It can be narrow. It can specify only certain types of things like just infringement or just personal injury. But really, you know, when you're the receiving end of that, you want it to be broad and it can enumerate a lot of different things. When we're talking about intellectual property, we obviously want to make sure that it picks up infringement, infringement actions from third parties. We see a lot of exclusions for IP infringement because IP infringement, especially patent infringement, can be so expensive. So sometimes you'll see exclusions because people have caught on to that. Yep, absolutely. And, and that's when we'll talk about limitations of liability and exclusions. But, you know, for purposes of the initial drafting of what is covered, we obviously really want it to be covered, um, infringement directly covered for that. But you're right, you will see exclusions for those sorts of things. I'm gonna cover a little bit later in our discussion, but there's also that trigger language carried to your point, which is when we say things like related to or arising out of, those are very broad, triggers for purposes of indemnification versus language like a claim that's directly arising from or solely resulting from. Those are narrower ways to define the indemnification obligations. So those are all sort of trigger words that we're looking for in, in the scope of how we're going to cover that indemnification obligation for that other party to come, come in and take care of us when, when we've been sued by a third party. Well, let's look at how it, how it works in practice. So Carrie, let's say I'm a company CEO. I get a letter from a patent assertion entity. The letter alleges that our company's use of the technology or our sales are infringing the patent assertion entity's patents um, and that we should take a license. Can you just walk us through how we should investigate whether the indemnification line of defense might be available? Sure. The first thing we do with our clients is we look at that, what we call the accused device or the accused technology. In the letter, the patent assertion entity should identify to the potential defendant what they think the accused product is relative to the infringement. So we'll look at that and then we'll determine whether or not we have that technology or that product internally. Are we using it? it, it, it do we in fact have this? And if we do, is it a homegrown thing? So for example, in the case of software, is it software that we've created in and of ourselves? Is it homegrown? Or is it something that we have gotten via a third party, like through a software agreement, like Judy mentioned? And once we determine that, that kind of gives us a sense of whether or not we have a potential party to get involved that may trigger these indemnities. I just want to note for people, and this might be something that we want to talk about in even in a separate podcast, which is open source software is not immune from patent infringement assertions. So I think people think that it's open source, it's free to use regardless, and it's not. So I just wanted to, to point that out. So if the answer is, oh, it's open source and we created it ourselves, doesn't necessarily mean it can't infringe. At any rate, if, if you've gotten the accused product or technology from a third party, that necessarily triggers the next question, which is, well, what do those agreements look like? And do they have an indemnity obligation on behalf of the supplier to us? And what do they look like? To Judy's point, you know, what's the coverage? What's the breadth? And most importantly, from the first step, what are those triggers? Sometimes there'll be a notice period that says, you know, you have to notify the potential indemnitor or indemnifying party within a certain amount of time of getting the notice letter. So you want to make sure that you're 
operating within those those trigger timelines. So on those notifications, I find that I have an indemnification clause. I comply with the notice obligations. How do I reach out and contact the indemnifying party? Um, Any suggestions there? Sure. I think once you have the documents in hand and really a good understanding of where you think the indemnity should play out, you should contact the other party. Generally speaking, I think it makes much more sense for that notice to be done in the ordinary course of business. So for example, between people who often communicate with that particular party within that company, as opposed to outside counsel, for instance, coming in and saying, hey, you've got an indemnity obligation, are you going to be a stand-up guy or not? That has a different tone than going about it in its normal way. However, there oftentimes are notice clauses in those agreements that tell you how to notify someone under that agreement. So you'll want to look at that to make sure you're acting in accordance with any notice provisions. Okay, thank you. And and so, so Judy, we may have some good news. If the indemnitor agrees to defend, what happens then? Do all my problems go away? <laughs> Maybe not. I mean, that is only as good as your indemnifying party is, is stepping up. So it also may not be to your benefit to just sort of turn it over and, and step away because you have interest too, right? As the party that's being indemnified. So what we sometimes see in these indemnification clauses is something that says you have the right to participate in, in the discussions with the other party. So for instance, you may want to seat at the table, a seat to be involved, turn the defense over to the other side, but continue to be involved so that whatever the ultimate resolution is, your interests are not harmed. Right, because I can see that in an instance, let's say you're a big company that's bought software from a little company and you've gotten the patent assertion letter and little company doesn't have the resources that you do. And so they go out and hire, let's say their brother-in-law law firm down the street. And that may not be you know, a law firm that you would want representing you because they may not be as sophisticated, for instance, in this kind of case. And so, like you said, Judy, this the, them taking this over may not be a great thing. And then what if they settle it and they say in the settlement includes that you you can't use it anymore, but it's a key piece of technology that you need to operate your company, but all of a sudden now you can't use it and you haven't had any input into that negotiation. So there can be some downsides to just completely handing it over for sure. That's right. And, And Carrie, I'll just throw it in there real quick too. One of the ways from a contract standpoint, to address the situation that you just mentioned, which is they agree that you can no longer use the technology is you can also think about outside of your indemnification clause, a a provision in the contract that says, if there is a situation like this, where the third party is saying, we as the licensee don't have the right to use this intellectual property, it's the licensor's obligation to modify it or provide alternative intellectual property or rights that will allow you to continue to get the benefit of what you've contracted for. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and especially in something as complicated as patent infringement and some of the risks associated with patent infringement, you can see situations where the level of risk is perceived different by the indemnifying party and then the indemnified party in terms of the severity of it. So what if the indemnitor does disagree or refuses to cooperate? or basically has a different view of the the scope and coverage of the clause, uh, what happens then? 
Well, you know, basically, you know, you, you are, once you've been given notice by the patent assertion entity, you're on the hook and you're hoping to be able to shift that in a favorable way out based on this off your plate is what I like to say. You want to get it off your plate based on this indemnity clause. But, you know, if you can't or they're refusing, you know, you remain responsible. And now you have a breach of contract action potentially against the, the indemnitor who is not honoring their obligation potentially. So now you have two actions to deal with. <laughs> so indemnification is an important tool, but it has its limits. So, you know, let's say in this climate, companies want to be proactive and they want to mitigate risk. Uh, any do's and don'ts, Judy, that you may have for drafting indemnification clauses? Yeah, the, there's, you know, there's the market sort of where we see a lot of indemnification clauses sort of end up. But, you know, there are some aspects that you want to be looking for. So my sort of do's and don'ts are should it be mutual or should it be unilateral? So should that indemnification, indemnification clause run both ways? And, and typically that's the market that most times the indemnification clause is gonna provide benefits to both parties, but that doesn't necessarily mean it needs to mirror each other, right? The obligations or the indemnification don't need to be exactly the same. So if you're the licensee, you shouldn't have to indemnify necessarily the, the licensor for infringement because that's not really in, you know, something that's appropriately covered in indemnification. There's direct contractual claims and indemnification really should only be dealing with third party claims. So you know, think about whether these are mirror images in, of each other or if there's some things that only run one way. I mentioned whether it should be limited to third party claims. A typical indemnification clause only covers the indemnified party for a claim that comes from a third party and not as between the parties directly because the parties have contract claims against each other directly. So they don't really want to be looking to an indemnification clause for actual breach of contract claims. So that's one thing that you often see is there's a, a limitation to third party claims. And then there's the liability disclaimers. This is the language that we see, and I think Gary may have alluded to this, is disclaimers of certain types of damages. We'll see carve-outs from the indemnification clause, sometimes within it, sometimes as a separate paragraph that says, the parties aren't going to be responsible to each other for consequential damages. And they might spell out lost profits or revenues as consequential damages or punitive damages. That makes a lot of sense for the contracting parties to say, hey, as between the two of us, we're not responsible to each other for lost profits. We're not responsible for punitive damages that some court or you know, other arbiter might, might award. However, you want to make sure that you have a carve out for that third party indemnification claim though, because that third party could be coming after you for those types of damages. And you want that party who has the obligation to indemnify to pick up those losses that you might incur for that as well. And, and, and that's a good point for being proactive. You know, often when you're you're drafting, let's say a software supplier agreement, you're not necessarily thinking four or five years down the road when a patent assertion entity letter from a third party is coming in. And and perhaps, you know, all the energy and thinking hadn't gone into that scope of, of indemnification. Absolutely. And so you know, your next tie here is your limitation of liability section, because you often will see in these contracts and people are thinking about like, what are my cap on damages if we end up in a fight in a dispute someday? And so it's very common to see on the licensor side to say, hey, licensee, 
I'm only responsible for, you know, two times the fees you've, you've paid me or not even two times, but, you know, just the fees you paid me and I'm not going to be responsible for any more. But if you end up in an infringement claim from a third party, as we all know, that can be very expensive and it can sort of eat up that value of that contract very quickly. So when we're looking in the limitation of liability section that says, hey, our damages are capped as between the two of us, you really need to be thinking about accepting out these third-party indemnification obligations because those defense costs alone can eat through a cap on damages very, very quickly, not even getting to the, the question of what the actual damages might be that a court might award. I think the last patent infringement cost of litigation stats I saw was an average case is two to $5 million in litigation fees. So yes. Exactly. It'll eat it up in a second. Mm-hmm. Well, well as, as, as we wrap up, many companies and, and many attorneys think of third-party patent infringement as sort of a federal issue, as patent laws resolved in federal law. Um, however, we're talking about a line of defense based in indemnification where, where there may be some state considerations. Are there any that, that our listeners should, should be mindful of, you know, say perhaps Ohio companies? Sure, Michael, I'll I'll jump in here and and point out that in Ohio, there is some case law out there that has found that the language you use in the indemnification clause is very important. So I alluded to earlier, I talked about, you know, what language you use as a trigger, indemnify, hold harmless, defend. We think about those as being somewhat interchangeable, but they're not, they're really not under Ohio law. You really need to say both indemnification plus defend, because the indemnification is basically going to say, hey, um, indemnified party, you're going to cover me if I lose, whereas we also want them to come in and pay the defense cost, because as Carrie noted, very, very expensive, the legal fees involved in defending a suit like that. So you need to use the words both indemnification and defend. And and also just to, to drive that point a little bit more, is if you don't say defend, you're basically, you want to say defend because you want them to come in and defend the merits of the case, even if the case doesn't have any merits. Because if you don't win that case, you may be stuck with both the loss and, you know, just the loss of the defense fees that you've spent. Whereas you may not, may only get recovery from your indemnifying party if you win. So there really is, you have to use that language. The words matter. So in Ohio, you want to make sure you use all the right words because a court may otherwise not read into your indemnification clause the obligation to defend and pay those costs. Some states will impose an implied duty to defend California in some instances. So it really can be state specific. Well, well, thank you. Thank you both for this helpful look at our first line of defense for managing patent assertion entities. We appreciate your insights, your practical suggestions. I think we just sort of scratched the surface of a very deep topic and really appreciate you helping us examine it. Well, let's end here for now. And I invite our listeners to look out for our next podcast in this series on managing responses to patent assertion entities. Thank you. Thank you.